Hello everyone, happy Wednesday, and welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct, you guys. I hope y'all are having a great week so far. I'm really excited to get into today's case. I feel like we haven't discussed a serial killer on this case in a while, and as you can tell by the title of today's episode, today we are talking about John Wayne Gacy. And if you don't know who this is, John Wayne Gacy is a serial killer known for killing at least 33 teenage boys and young men between the years of 1972 and 1978. John is also sometimes referred to as the killer clown for reasons we will discuss later in today's episode. So this was one of those killers for me, one of the serial killers who I always knew about. You know, I always heard about him, kind of heard little bits and pieces here and there, but I never fully understood his story. I never fully knew his story, which is why I wanted to take the time today and go through it in more depth and in more detail, just in case there's some of you out there who are like me and didn't really know it before. A little fun fact is I actually went to the Museum of Death. I think it was probably a year and a half ago at this point. And I went to the one in West Hollywood, California. And I'm not sure if there's different ones across the country in America um, or anywhere else in the world, but I do know that there's one in West Hollywood, California. And I visited it about a year and a half ago. And if you have the stomach for it and you have the time to go check it out, I highly, highly recommend it. Um, it's so so insane. Some of the artifacts and just things that they have in there are mind-blowing. And when I went in, basically they have little sections. So you start in one section and you kind of make your way through the museum through different um, categories and sections that they have. And one category that they have, I believe it's the first category they have, is the serial killer section. And when I went, they had some of the items from the serial killers themselves in this section. And when I was there, they had the the clown boots that John Wayne Gacy wore and that he owned, as well as some of his letters out from prison. And it was just a crazy sight to see. So I definitely recommend if you can and can stomach it um, to go check it out. I definitely think that you would enjoy it. So with that all being said, that was just kind of a little backstory. Um, But with that being said, let's just get on into it today. So whenever we look into serial killers, I do think that it is important to look at their backstory and look at their up bringing because so often we see these people who have committed these horrific crimes and we just wonder, like the one question is like, what led them to do this? Like what led them here? So I do want to kind of run through John Gacy's upbringing and his childhood. So John Wayne Gacy was born on March 17th of 1942 in Chicago, Illinois. He was born to his parents, John Stanley Gacy and Marion Robinson was his mother. John was a middle child and he had an older and younger sister. Um, John's dad was actually a World War I veteran and an auto repair machinist. And his mother was a stay-at-home mom and a homemaker. And John didn't have the best relationship with his father. He was always trying to seek approval from his father and trying to make him proud, but he never got that reassurance and acceptance that he really wanted from his dad. His dad did physically and emotionally abuse John and would constantly tell him that he was never good enough, never going to be anything, no one's ever going to like him or love him. And when John was about six years old, his mother did try to step in and protect John from the abuse that he was enduring from his father, but it didn't really work in John's favor because it would 
lead to him being called a sissy or a mama's boy from his dad. So John was also molested by a family member and never ended up telling anyone about it until later on in life because he was afraid that his dad would not believe him and would end up punishing him for it. When John was 18 years old, he ended up working with an ambulance service in Las Vegas. So he moved out to Las Vegas when he was 18, working with this ambulance service. And after working at this ambulance service, he made his way into working into a funeral home. And he worked there as an attendant and he slept on a cot behind the embalming room that was in the funeral home. So he actually watched morticians embalming dead bodies. And he actually ended up confessing later on that one night while he was alone at work, everyone else had gone home and he actually got into the coffin of a deceased teenage male and laid with the body embracing it. And while doing this, he said that he felt a sense of shock. And the next day, he kind of got freaked out. So he ended up calling his mom and asked if he could come back home and live with his family in Chicago, which his parents both agreed to. So he ended up driving back home and relocated to Chicago after this incident. And when he got home, he actually ended up enrolling in Northwestern Business College and graduated from there in 1963. After graduating, he worked at a shoe company and then was transferred to Springfield, Illinois to to work as a salesman for the same shoe company. And then eventually from there, he was promoted to a manager of this business. And in 1964, he also got engaged to a woman named Marilyn Myers. Now, Marilyn was a coworker of his, which is how the two of them ended up meeting. And they got married in September, 1964, after nine months of dating. Marilyn's dad actually bought three Kentucky Fried Chicken KFC restaurants in Waterloo, Iowa. So because of this, uh, Marilyn's dad basically promised Marilyn and John that they could help run the KFC businesses. So they ended up relocating to Waterloo, Iowa because of that. Another important event that happened in 1964 is that John actually had his first sexual encounter with a male. So according to John, him and a colleague of his were hanging out together one night. And John said that this colleague was basically just feeding him drinks the entire night and invited him to spend the night on his couch. And once John agreed, this colleague of his performed sexual acts on him while he was drunk. So that obviously had a very huge effect on John for the rest of of his life. But in 1966, two years later, life seemed to be going pretty well for John. He was earning about $15,000 a year, which I know does not sound like anything now, but the equivalent of that in present day is at about $115,000 today is what that was back then. So he was earning that and he would also earn a share of the profits that each KFC location was making. And in 1966, John and Marilyn had the their first son, who they named Michael. And then in the following year, in 1967, they had their daughter, whom they named Christine. And now that John finally had a family of his own and was doing well in life, John's father actually kind of had this awakening. And in 1967, John's dad actually apologized 
to John for the physical and emotional abuse that John had to endure as a child and said that he was finally proud of him for what he was making of his life. But even though on the outside, John's life did seem like everything was now starting to fall into place, there was a much darker side to John Gacy than he was leading on. John constantly cheated on his wife, Marilyn, with local prostitutes in the area. And not even that, he also kind of opened, it's just, it's so bizarre. He opened this club, so to speak, in his basement. He had a pool table, he had music, he had like dark lighting and drinks and alcohol and all that stuff in his basement of his house. And he would allow some of his employees who were all teenage men. I mean, he hired men and women of all ages, but the only people he would allow in this club were teenage men. And what he would do is when these boys would come over, he would have them drink and play pool and would get them drunk and make sexual advances at these boys. And when they would decline, John would say that it was just a joke and he was just seeing if the boys would actually do it and where their morals lied. In August of 1967, John Gacy committed his first known sexual assault. The victim was a 15-year-old boy named Donald Voorhees. I just want to go ahead real quick and um, just kind of make a disclaimer and apologize ahead of time if I end up mispronouncing any of these names. Um, I am trying my best, but if I do end up mispronouncing, I do apologize. So John ended up luring Donald into John's home with the promise that he would show him pornographic films And when they got into his house, John started basically just feeding Donald alcoholic drink after drink. And then because he was so drunk, John was able to persuade Donald to perform sexual acts upon him. And over the next couple months after that, there were several young men who were sexually assaulted in a similar way and one that was even blackmailed by John. And it took Donald a year to come forward and tell his dad what ended up happening. And once he did, John was arrested for sodomy and was charged not only with Donald's assault, but he was also charged with the attempted assault of a 16-year-old boy named Edward Lynch, and John continuously denied the charges and said they were politically motivated. So in August of 1968, John actually tried to persuade one of his employees, and this employee's name was Russell Schroeder, and he persuaded Russell to physically assault Donald. That way, Donald would not be able to testify against John in the upcoming trial against him for the assault case for what John did to Donald, the assault that John did to Donald. So he ended up paying Russell $300 in exchange for him scaring Donald into not testifying. So in early September, Russell actually lured Donald into a park and sprayed mace in his face, pepper spray, while continuously beating him, telling him he was not going to testify against John. Luckily, Donald was able to escape and named Russell his attacker to the police. And Russell then blamed John Gacy and said he was just doing what John wanted him to do. And John was also charged again in hiring Russell. John did try to claim insanity and say that he wasn't competent enough to stand trial, but he did undergo a psychiatric evaluation and he was seen competent. So the trial went through. But John actually ended up entering a guilty plea to one count of sodomy and plea 
not guilty to all the other charges against him. So because of this, John was convicted of sodomy on December 3rd, 1968 and sentenced to 10 years in prison. The day he was sentenced, Marilyn, his wife, filed for divorce and basically got all of their belongings as well as custody of both of their kids. And John never saw Marilyn, Michael, or Christine ever again. When John went to jail, weirdly enough, he kind of became like the golden child of prisoners. He had risen to a position of the head cook of the kitchen, and he secured increases to, in the inmates' daily pay in prison, and he also supervised several projects that were made to improve the conditions for inmates. So John wasn't really seen as like a super dangerous threat in prison. He actually kind of was able to really shine, which is a little bizarre, but John had filed for early release in June 1969, but that request was denied. And while he was in prison on Christmas Day, John had actually found out that his dad ended up passing away. John wasn't told that his dad had died until two days after he had passed. And when he found out, John was in just he was just an absolute wreck. He had requested a supervised leave to attend the funeral of his father, but his request for that was also denied, and that was really difficult for him as well. So here's where things start just going downhill. So John was actually granted parole with 12 months probation after only serving, you ready for this, 18 months of his 10-year prison sentence. The requirements for him were that he had to go back to Chicago and live with his mother, and he had a 10 p.m. curfew every single night. So he ended up moving back to Chicago and lived with his mom and ended up getting a job as a cook in a restaurant, and John's parole ended early. Yes, his parole ended early after only eight months eight months and that was it. And he ended up buying a house in Norwood Park Township in Illinois after his eight-month parole was up. And the address of that at the time was 8213 West Summerdale Avenue. So after he bought the house, he ended up getting engaged to a new woman. Now this woman's name was Carol Hoff and Carol had two young daughters and the two of them actually had briefly dated in high school. So they kind of reconnected years and years later. And after John and Carol announced their engagement. She, as well as her daughters, moved into the house with him. So a week before his wedding, literally just one week before his wedding, John was arrested again for aggravated battery and reckless conduct after a man named Jackie D said that John was impersonating a police officer in order to lure him into his car and perform sexual acts on him. But the charges actually ended up being dropped after it was brought to light that Jackie tried to get John to to pay money in exchange for dropping the charges or trying to bribe him. So the charges ended up being dropped anyways. So after John and Carol got married, a couple different things happened. John started his own construction business that he called PDM Contractors. John ended up also joining a club called the Moose Club, which is almost like an older men's fraternity club. Like they went around and just did different things. And one of the things that he did, one of the things that he got introduced to was a different little sub club kind of called the Jolly Joker Clown Club. 
and the members of this club would go and entertain children who were in the hospital and go to birthday parties and just different events where they felt like they could entertain with a clown. So that's what they would do. They would dress up as clowns. John had two different personas as a clown. He had Pogo the clown and he had Patches the clown. So John would design his own costumes. He did his own makeup. And after a while, you know, he just, he did the performing thing. He went to children's birthday parties and charitable events and the hospitals. And there were times where John would even wear the clown costume to the bar. Like he would just have his whole clown costume, makeup on and everything, go to the bar saying he was just grabbing a drink on his way home. And in 1976, John and Carol ended up actually getting a divorce. So the two of them got divorced after she caught him bringing teenage boys into their garage. And she also found men's wallets and IDs inside of their home. And he would just spend most nights away from the house. So the marriage really wasn't working. So they ended up getting a divorce. But as far as why John is referred to as the killer clown, that is why. It is because he joined this Jolly Joker club and dressed up as Pogo and Patches the clown and went and entertained people. And it's just, it's very, it's a bizarre thing when you look at the grand scheme of it and look at who he really was as a person. It's really quite disturbing. So with all of this being said, let's talk about the first known murder victim. So John's first known murder victim, like I said, there could be more that we just haven't discovered, but his first known one happened on January 2nd, 1972. So we're kind of backtracking a couple years from when him and Carol ended up getting a divorce. So his first known victim was 16-year-old Timothy McCoy, who was murdered on January 2nd of 1972. John had seen Timothy waiting at a Greyhound bus stop as he was traveling from Michigan to Omaha, Nebraska, and he ended up stopping in Chicago for kind of like a sightseeing tour. He wanted to just see what was around it and make a quick stop there. So when John was driving by the bus stop, he actually saw Timothy and ended up pulling his car over and told Timothy he could come and spend the night at his house if he wanted to. And John told him that he would take him back to the bus stop the next day and he would catch the bus and it would be no big deal. But Timothy never made it to the bus stop the next morning. Now, according to John, which we don't know what actually happened that night. We only have what John says happened and that's really all I can tell you. So that's just what I'm going to say, but just take it with a grain of salt considering who this monster is. So according to John, he said that he took Timothy home with him to spend the night. Mind you, he's 16 years old. This should not be happening anyways, which you guys already know. I don't need to tell you that. But according to John, he said the next morning, John was woken up by Timothy standing in the doorway of his bedroom holding a knife. And John said that when he saw this, he freaked out and basically tackled Timothy to the floor and wrestled him to the ground. And they were kind of having this back and forth kind of wrestling match, but it ended with John straddling Timothy and stabbing him to death. Now, John said that this was completely out of self-defense. He felt like Timothy was trying to attack him, so he needed to protect himself. But then John realized once he got up and walked into the kitchen that Timothy had not only made breakfast, but set out two place settings for them. So it was clear to John that Timothy was just coming to wake him up because he was telling him that he had made breakfast for the both of them, not that he was trying to murder him. But regardless, 
John said that once he murdered Timothy, he felt some sort of sexual gratification from it. And that is when he realized that, quote, death was the ultimate thrill, end quote. Okay, we're going to take a short break, but we will be right back with more of the Killer Instinct podcast. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. All right, you guys, welcome back. John says that the second time he committed murder was in January of 1974, which was two years after Timothy's murder. This time, the victim was an unidentified teenage male with medium brown hair somewhere between the ages of 14 and 18 years old, and the cause of death was strangulation. John ended up burying him in the backyard of his home about 15 feet from a barbecue pit that he kept in his backyard. So in 1975, John's construction business really started to take off and John took this opportunity to hire a lot more people and those people were mostly young teenage high school boys. John would also do what he called cruising which was basically driving around the suburban neighborhoods looking for young boys and trying to lure them into working at his company which would then lead to more. He would either lure them into working at his company or lure them back to his home. He was always just looking for his next victim and one of the young men that worked for PDM Construction was a boy named Anthony Antonucci, and he was hired for the company in May 1975. So just a couple months after he had been working for PDM in 1975, Anthony actually ended up hurting his foot at work, and the very next day, John ended up going to Anthony's house when no one was home except him, and he did his normal routine. He started giving Anthony alcohol, and once he felt like Anthony was under the influence, enough, he actually got Anthony in handcuffs with his hands behind his back, but John ended up leaving the room for a second, and when he did that, Anthony was actually able to get out of these handcuffs, and when John came back into the room, Anthony wrestled John to the ground and put the handcuffs on John instead. John actually made a deal with Anthony and said that if Anthony let him out of the handcuffs, he would leave his house which Anthony actually agreed to do, and John left, and that was that. Just, does that not just seem like the most bizarre thing to you? Like, the most absolutely crazy thing, and it was never reported to police. Like, that was never reported. It's just, it's mind-blowing to me. So, most of John's murders were committed from 1976 to 1978, and we are about to just go through those, and you will realize, like, the time period in which these murders are committed, I feel like with most serial killers, they take time. You know, they have their 
they murder someone and then they wait either a month or two months or three months or six months or whatever. John did not have that same time period. So in April 1976, he ended up murdering an 18-year-old man named Daryl Sampson. And five weeks later, he murdered a 15-year-old boy named Randall Reffitt while he was walking home from Sen High School. And just hours after, literally hours after Randall's murder, John murdered 14-year-old Samuel Stapleton. Samuel was last seen walking to his sister's apartment and both Randall and Samuel were buried in the same crawl space underneath John's home. In June 1976, John murdered 17-year-old Michael Bonin, who disappeared while traveling from Chicago. Michael was strangled with a ligature and buried underneath John's home again. You guys will realize all of John's victims, except for um, several of them at the end that we will get to, they were all buried underneath his house. 10 days after Michael's murder, 16-year-old William Carroll was murdered and buried directly underneath John's kitchen. There are three unidentified victims of John that are suspected to have been between the ages of 16 and 17 at the time of their deaths. On July 26, 1976, John hired an 18-year-old named David Cram, and on August 21st, David actually moved in to John's house with him. But it didn't go quite as you might think it went. So one once he moved in, the day after, John had persuaded David into being placed in handcuffs while he was drunk. He did his typical MO, fed David all this alcohol, tried to get him in handcuffs. And John told David that he planned on raping him. And David had actually spent a year in the army. So because of that, he was able to escape the handcuffs by kicking John in the face. But he didn't move out of John's home after this. That didn't happen until about a month later when John went into David's David's bedroom and told him that it would be best if David did what John wanted him to do because David didn't know what John was capable of. That is when David decided that it was best to move out, but he didn't end up quitting his job until two years later. So he still worked at PDM for two years. And after he moved out of John's home, another employee of John's ended up moving in. And that was 18-year-old Michael Rossi. And on October 24th, 1976, John murdered two teenage boys named Kenneth Parker and Michael Marino. Kenneth and Michael were actually friends and were last seen outside of a restaurant on Clark Street. They were both strangled and buried in the same grave in the same crawl space. Two days later, 19-year-old William Bundy, who worked for PDM contractors, went missing after informing his family that he was going to a party. William was found strangled and buried in the same crawl space underneath John's master bedroom. Now, before we get any further, I want to kind of pick your guys' brains for a little bit and just because I have this question. So I know someone has to have this question and that is for the people that were living with John, you know, David and then Michael, how did no one know that he was just burying all of these bodies underneath this crawl space, you know, I read in a couple different sources that he would, John would kind of blame the smell on just, you know, pests and rodents and different gross things like that. But obviously he was never saying that it was dead bodies underneath his house. Um, 
But how do you not know that? Like, how do you not have an inkling? It was very surprising for me to realize and to learn that David did not move out of the house after John's first attempt to basically rape him and murder him. He was trying to make David a victim of his and David was able to get out of that, but he didn't end up moving out. So I'm just very curious to see what you guys have to think about that because that is a very big question mark in my mind. How do you not know? I mean, obviously you're not looking for it because when you move in with someone you don't think that they're a serial killer but at the same time it just makes me question i don't know i'm curious to see what you guys have to say about that moving on though gregory godzik was a 17 year old boy working for pdm who disappeared and was last seen outside of his girlfriend's house after he had driven her home from a date that the two of them went on together after he went missing gregory's family reached out to john to tell him about his disappearance and that's when john told his family that gregory actually ran away from home and he had been telling john that he had been planning to do this for a while and he also said that he received a voicemail from Gregory saying that he was running away and when Gregory's family asked to hear it John said that he ended up erasing the message so he already erased the message so they couldn't listen to it also this is just another thing it's like all of these boys are going missing that all work for the same company like how is no one putting two and two together before this. I'm, I don't know. But a month later, on January 20th, 1977, 19-year-old John Sizek disappeared. John was lured into John Gacy's home with the hopes of selling his Plymouth satellite to John Gacy. It's John and John. It's kind of confusing. Um, instead, he was actually buried in John's crawl space directly above the body of Gregory Godzik. So John is, John Gacy is literally just stacking bodies on top of each other underneath his house. It is Oh, God, it's so horrific. So John Gacy kept the ring that John Sizek was actually wearing in a dresser of his master bedroom. So he was willingly just keeping evidence just stored throughout his house. And sometime between December 17th, 1976 and March 1977, John is known to have murdered an unidentified man estimated to be about 25 years old. There was an inscription on a key found in the personal artifacts buried with this specific man that suggested that his first name was either Greg or Gregory. His body was buried beneath the body of a 20-year-old named John Prestige, who was murdered by John Gacy on March 15th after visiting his friends in Chicago. So in late 1977, Carol and John actually started dating again. So they got divorced about a year or so prior to that, and then they started dating again, thinking maybe they can make things work. But by late 1977, John murdered an additional six young young men between the ages of 16 and 21. Those men were 18-year-old Robert Gilroy, who was last seen on September 15th and who was the son of a Chicago police sergeant. 10 days later, 19-year-old John Mowry, who was a Marine, disappeared after leaving his mother's house to walk to his own apartment. John Mowry was strangled to death and buried in the northwest corner of the crawl space underneath John Gacy's home. On October 17th, 1977, 21-year-old Russell Nelson disappeared and died due to suffocation, and less than four weeks after that, 16-year-old Robert Winch was murdered. On November 18, 1977, 20-year-old Tommy Bowling disappeared and was buried underneath the hallway in John's home. Three weeks later, a 19-year-old Marine named David Talsma went missing after attending a rock concert in Hammond, Illinois, and he was also strangled with a ligature and buried in the crawl space of John's home. 
So on December 30th, 1977, John Gacy abducted 19-year-old Robert Donnelly from Chicago at a bus stop at gunpoint. He drove Robert home with him, raped and tortured him, which included him dunking his head multiple times into a bathtub filled with water until he went unconscious. And then Robert, when he would come out of consciousness, he would just keep doing it over and over again. So he was just going in and out of consciousness multiple times. And the weird thing here is that John actually didn't end up murdering Robert. He ended up driving Robert back to his place of work, took off the handcuffs, and released him, something that was just not like his MO at any point in time before. Robert did end up reporting this to the police in January 1978, and John admitted that everything that happened between the two of them was consensual, and the police actually believed John, so the charges were dropped. The very next month, John Gacy murdered a 19-year-old named William Kindred, who went missing on February 16, 1978. William was the last victim to be buried underneath John's home, and after William, John began disposing the bodies of his victims in the Deplaines River. In March of 1978, John had lured a man named Jeffrey Rignall, who was 26 years old at the time, into his car. And once Jeffrey was in John's car, John had chloroformed him and then raped and tortured him with various different items. And every time he would regain consciousness, John would just use the chloroform again to knock him out. Fortunately, Jeffrey was able to get away from John and back to his girlfriend's apartment after all of this. And he called the police and tried to report this. However, once again, they did not investigate John Wayne Casey. It just is mind-blowing to me. I don't under stand. I just don't understand it. So on December 11th, 1978, there was a 15-year-old boy named Robert Peist who went missing after his shift from the Nissan pharmacy. And his shift was over at about 9 o'clock p.m. that night. And his mother, Robert's mother, went to go pick him up from work. But Robert told his mom to wait a little bit because he was planning on meeting up with a man about a construction job that pays $5 an hour, which was twice more than what he was making at the time. So that was the last time anyone had ever heard from Robert. So after waiting a really long time at the Nissan pharmacy, Robert's mother got really worried. So she ended up going back to her house and returned to Robert's work with her husband, daughter, and other son, as well as the family's two German shepherd dogs. And they started searching and they just looked and looked and looked, but they couldn't find Robert anywhere. And that is when they went to the police to file a missing persons report for Robert. There was a lieutenant at the police station who had a son who went to the same high school as Robert and did an extremely in-depth investigation, partially just because it hit so close to home for him. And he learned that John's company, PDM Contractors, had recently remodeled Nissan Pharmacy. And John was actually the man that Robert was planning on speaking to about getting a job. John is then asked to come into the police station for questioning and the police waited until about 1 a.m. for him that same night that Robert went missing. But John failed to show up after he had agreed hours prior to be there and that he would be there and he would talk to them, but he never ended up going. And what police didn't know was that during that time period that he was supposed to be at the station, John actually took the deceased body of Robert Priest and drove it into the De Plains River where he disposed of the body.
On December 13th, at about 3.20 a.m., John went to the police station and asked to speak to the lieutenant, who at the time was not there, and John was asked by the other officers to come back at a later time, which he ended up doing. And when he returned the second time, the lieutenant asked John for the keys to his house after telling John that he had a warrant to search his home. And John handed over the keys, and when they did the search of John's house, they were able to find a receipt for a roll of film that was being processed and developed and according to robert's family they said that the receipt actually belonged to a friend of robert so basically robert had agreed to develop a roll of film for a friend of his and because of that they were able to conclude that robert was in john's home at some point and on december 15th 1978 police had john and a 24-hour surveillance watch so they were on him like a hawk and they were continuing to search his home as well and that is when they found a Maine West High School ring that belonged to John Sizek, the young man who John had murdered and at this point had been missing for two years. On December 19th, John invited two police officers inside of his home for breakfast, and both officers say they remember smelling the scent of death immediately as they walked into the house. I do not know how you cannot smell the scent of death from outside of the house, but they said that they remember smelling it immediately the second they stepped into the house, and they also remember seeing a lot of disturbing artwork of clowns inside of John's home. There were multiple planings of clowns hanging up throughout the house and in the hallways. It was just everywhere. And it wasn't until December 20th, 1978, that police learned of the prior charges made against John for sodomy in 1968, 10 years prior. Again, I'm not sure why it took them so long, but I'm not a police officer. I'm not sure how the whole thing works. So the good thing is, is they found it. At some point, they were able to figure it out. John Wayne Gacy was arrested on December 21st, 1978, after a police officer saw him handing a package that contained marijuana to a gas station clerk. That's what ended up getting him arrested, which is crazy. This was the beginning of the downfall of John Wayne Gacy. While he was in custody, police were able to obtain another search warrant to go into his home. And while they were in there, Police accused John of, of holding Robert underneath the home and threatened to tear up the floor in order to find his body, which is when John denied that Robert was underneath the floor, because remember, he had already dumped Robert's body into the Deplaine River, so he wasn't lying about that. But what he had said is that he was forced to kill a man in self-defense and buried him underneath the concrete floor of his garage. And remember, he's talking about Timothy, the one that he said that he killed in self-defense because he saw him holding a knife in his bedroom like doorway. So John actually led investigators to the garage of his home and marked the place of the floor exactly where the body was buried with spray paint. And while the police were at the house, they also discovered a trapped door to the house's crawl space where they found parts of at least three different bodies. And at this point, they knew that they had him. So on December 22nd, 1978, John Gacy finally confesses to police in a several long hour verbal statement about the murders that he had committed. He told police that he had killed 33 young men after having sexual relations with them. While confessing, he never talked in the first person, which is something to keep in mind. He always referred to himself as either John or Jack. He told police he buried 27 of the victims on his property, which police were able to find 29 of them. He also said that five other of the bodies were thrown into the Deplaines River, which police were only able to find four of them. John didn't end up drawing 
drawing diagrams to show exactly where the bodies were located and gave the names of six of his victims. John was charged with Robert's murder, but Robert's body was not found at that point. Once John confessed, police tore his house apart, rightfully so. They completely undid the flooring and found wallets, IDs, and just other distinguishing items of the victims in his home. And by March 16th, 1979, 29 bodies were found in John Wayne Gacy's home. Just think of that, 20 nine bodies. On January 3rd, 1979, police met with John who told him that each of the victims were murdered inside of his home and it was only after the crawl space under his home was crowded did he begin dumping the bodies into the river. On January 4th, 1979, police found Robert Peist's jacket inside of John's home. On January 8th, 1979, John Gacy is charged with the murder of seven young men and the felonies of aggravated kidnapping, deviate sexual assault, and taking indecent liberties with a child. John Wayne Gacy actually pled not guilty. Yes, he pled not guilty, and his trial began on February 6, 1980. And because of the graphic nature of the crimes, the judge banned anyone younger than 16 years old from the courtroom. After a five-week trial, it took the jury less than two hours to convict John Gacy of killing 33 young men. He was then sentenced to death, and while he was in jail, John spent a lot of time painting, and he painted a lot of clown paintings, as well as different other cartoon paintings, and he also made one of the seven dwarves from Disney's Snow White. On May 10th, 1994, at 12.58 a.m., John Wayne Gacy was executed by lethal injection at the Stateville Correctional Center. For his last meal, John Wayne Gacy requested fried chicken and butterfly shrimp. And even though John is fortunately off this earth, his victims' cases still live on to this day. In 2015, there were 11 cold cases that were solved by Detective Sergeant Jason Moran, and that actually ended up clearing them from being released to John Wayne Gacy because think about it, they only know about 33 of the victims. And at the time of his arrest, John did confess to police that the number, the total number that he had committed, the murders that he committed was 45. However, only 33 of them had ever been found. And when police didn't find as many as he said that he had murdered, they went back and asked John if there were more victims. And he just said, that's for you guys to find out. So obviously when it comes to cold cases around that time period and in that location, it very well could be a result of a John Wayne Gacy murder. But there were 11 cold cases that were cleared by Detective Sergeant Jason Moran, and there are still six unidentified victims of John Wayne Gacy, and five were found in the crawl space, as well as the identified male that was buried near the barbecue pit, which was his second murder. As far as John's house that stored all of his victims, the house was torn down and later sold in 1984 for $30,544.01. And construction to build a new house on that lot began four years later, and the location also received a new address. In 1984, one of John Wayne Gacy's defense attorneys named Sam Amarante, again, I apologize if I am mispronouncing that, took the reins on what needed to be done to create the Missing Child Recovery Act of 1984. Sam has stated that the inspiration for this act was the Gacy murders, which is actually very funny considering he defended John Wayne Gacy in his trial. But before this act, there had been a mandatory 72-hour wait period before police initiated a search for a missing child or adolescent. And with this Missing Child Recovery Act of 1984, it had removed the 72-hour wait period. And since then, other states in America have also taken on this act in similar ways. So I know 
this is a very long case and I know I just threw a lot of information at you and I know that I learned a lot through doing my research on John Wayne Gacy and just understanding the story more and I hope that through this episode you were able to kind of get a better understanding as well if you weren't as familiar with this and I would just love to hear your guys's feedback I know it's not like a case based off of theory like you can't send me in your theory but I would just love to hear what you guys have to say about it. I find this case so fascinating considering John Wayne Gacy was able to escape conviction so much. Like he did so many things that police were that were brought to police's attention and could have been brought to police's attention on different occasions as well, but the police knew about him. Like he was he had been arrested before. Like it just blows my mind that he wasn't watched more and he wasn't questioned more and he didn't, you know, he just he just kind of like flew under the radar of it all which is very very crazy to me when i think about it but i would love to know what you guys think so make sure you email me at killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com again that is killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com you can also dm me my instagram is just savannah brimer it is my first and last name and with that being said you guys that is all for me today thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of killer instinct if you are new here hi my name is savannah and i am your host of killer instinct we make episodes every wednesday here so make sure you hit that follow button because you are not going to want to miss it. With that being said, you guys, that is all for me today. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode and I will see you next week. Until then, stay safe, guys. Have a great rest of your week.